Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, why do people risk their lives to get to Europe? On the 23rd of October, news broke of a really grim discovery at a business park in Essex in England. 39 people had been found dead in a lorry. We've obviously been talking about this a huge amount in the weeks that followed The migrant crisis, as it was dubbed back in 2015, was a major discussion point as bodies continued to wash up in shores. And we all remember that enduring image of Alan Kurdi, the young Syrian boy who was found face down on a beach in Turkey from September of that year. In 2016, more than 5,000 people died trying to make the crossing. But while the numbers of people entering the EU as asylum seekers has actually decreased since then, therefore the news has also decreased, migration to European shores is still as perilous for the many, many people who make the journey every year. So far in 2019, 1,078 people who attempted to get to Europe are either dead or missing. And the Essex deaths have sparked that conversation again, with many people asking why the UK in particular is such a desired destination. To delve into this complex and quite difficult topic more, I'm joined today by the Journal.ie reporter Orla Ryan, who has been examining the wider European situation since that Essex discovery. Sean Byrne, former economics lecturer at TU Dublin, who has an expertise in this area as well. And Aoife Niverku, a nurse who has spent time in both Libya and the Mediterranean with Médecins Sans Frontières. Welcome all. Now, it's an incredibly tough topic to reduce to just numbers or single incidents, but this is in our news cycle again, Orla, because of what happened in Essex. Um, We know that there are open court proceedings in the case, but can you just run us through what we know so far, just the basic facts? Yes, so as you mentioned, on the 23rd of October, the bodies of 39 people were found in the back of a lorry in Essex. Police initially believed that the victims, 31 men and eight women, were Chinese nationals, but now they believe some are all are Vietnamese and that's the line of inquiry that they're following. So it has only been just over a week, so we're at quite an early stage in the investigation, but there have been a number of significant developments to date already. The driver of the lorry, 25-year-old Morris Robinson from Northern Ireland, has already been charged with 39 counts of manslaughter and a number of other charges relating to money laundering and human trafficking. A British court heard that Robinson was part of a global ring involved in smuggling large numbers of people into the UK. Eamon Harrison, a 23-year-old man also from Northern Ireland, was arrested in Dublin and is facing similar charges. A number of other people have been arrested in the UK, in Vietnam, and Essex police have said they are looking to speak to two brothers from County Monaghan and have renewed an appeal for them to come forward. It's obviously a really complex investigation. As I said, there's open court proceedings, so we'll leave that there. But one of the other things that has brought this really into um, people's psyche and and into the news cycle was a vote in the European Parliament um, which looked at the migration um, process in the EU. And there was a lot of criticism um, towards Fine Gael MEPs because they voted against um, a, a resolution. What was the resolution and why was there controversy? Yeah, so the day after the 39 bodies were found in Essex, MEPs narrowly rejected a resolution which called on European countries to step up search and rescue efforts in the Mediterranean. So the resolution, which was not legally binding, was very narrowly rejected by just two votes. 290 MEPs voted in favour, 288 voted against and 36 MEPs abstained. As you said, Fine Gael MEPs were roundly criticised after rejecting the vote. All four Fine Gael MEPs rejected it. What was their reasoning for not voting for it? Yeah, so a number of Fine Gael MEPs have come 
out in the days since then and defended their decision. Mairead McGuinness in particular said the main bone of contention was the fact that the resolution called on Frontex, that's the European Border and Coast Guard Agency, to release information about their operations to make that publicly available in a bid to help rescue ships. But Mairead McGuinness and others have said that could actually aid traffickers as well because they could amend their plans based on this information and she said that wasn't acceptable but we had other Irish MEPs coming out and saying that you know that that wasn't okay and we had Martina Anderson for example from the north she said it was a matter of deep shame for Fine Gael um, she said that they were in favour of freedom of movement but in this instance they had aligned themselves with right wing MEPs in order to not allow people who were fleeing war and persecution to um, be afforded that same level of freedom of movement Marie McGuinness speaking to RT the next day she said the issue was being highly politicised and that she wasn't going to allow anybody question her morals. Is there anything that the EU then has in its plans? It's rejected this even though it wouldn't have been legally binding. Is there anything that they do want to do? Well, as we've seen in recent months and indeed years, um, EU member states um, disagree vastly on what to do in relation to the migrant and refugee crisis. A number of countries came together in recent weeks in a bid to try and and do something. And so France, Italy, Germany and Malta came up with the so-called Malta Agreement. This was in a bid to stop the drownings that have been happening. And we've seen in recent months where rescue ships have been out at sea for weeks and weeks and have been unable to dock. So in a bid to stop this from happening, they um, came up with an agreement whereby asylum seekers would be automatically redistributed across the EU. Then they would have four weeks in which to apply for asylum and either be granted it or not apply or not be eligible and then be sent back. So this was all meant to happen as a fast track plan that this would happen. sent back to their home countries rather than sent back to the shores that they had come from. Yes. Um, So then they put this to interior ministers at a meeting in October, but only Luxembourg, Ireland and Portugal agreed to sign up to this. So the vast majority of EU member states were saying they didn't want to do this or they weren't ready to back it. So it's unclear really what's going to happen in the next few weeks and months. Sean, I think one of um, the main talking points after the Essex deaths and back in um, during the kind of height of the migrant crisis in 2015 was why people risk their lives. They know how perilous the journey is. They know how difficult it will be to cross the Mediterranean. What is? What are the factors that make people take those risks? Well, of course, there are both push and pull factors. I mean, at the height of the crisis in 2015, uh, the bulk, about 50% of those crossing the Mediterranean were in fact uh, coming from Syria, from conflict zones where their lives were, were in actual danger. But in fact, if we look at the others who were crossing, they were mainly from sub-Saharan Africa. And that got uh, much less attention okay, at the time. For instance, I recall, um, you may recall that an Irish naval ship went out to work on, on search and rescue. And on their first um, mission, okay, they picked up, I think, about 80 people, okay, and half of them were from sub-Saharan Africa. And of course, that's because um, sub-Saharan Africa is undergoing a, an astonishing population explosion. And And very few of the countries are growing um, economically. The population is growing faster than output is growing. And so poverty is increasing and people are being, uh, there's a relentless push uh, for people to leave. Mainly, of course, they're usually young men, okay, who are, uh, you know, fairly fit and active and able to endure those conditions. But it's important to put all of this in a historical context. I mean, migration has been a feature of human life since the first humans left the Rift Valley in Kenya about 100,000 years ago and started moving northwards. Um, 
I think in Ireland, it's quite interesting because we're becoming accustomed to having immigrants when, in fact, traditionally we were ourselves a country of emigration. Um, if you look at Ireland's history, I mean, there were eight million people living on this island before the famine. And in, within two years of the famine, one million people had died and one million had emigrated. And from that um, time onwards, from the population census of 1841 to the population census of 1961, um, the population of Ireland declined. It didn't decline because we weren't making enough babies. We were making lots of them. But um, a population increases if the uh, birth rate is greater than the death rate. And that was happening in Ireland, but it was offset by emigration. To put it in very simple terms, if 100 babies were born and 80 people died, the population should go up by 20. In Ireland, what happens is 100 babies are born, 80 people die and 21 people emigrate. So the, 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 the pull factors then are important as well, because let's be clear, Several developed countries now, their population would be falling if it were not for immigration. For example, um, Angela Merkel was seen as being very courageous, very philanthropic, perhaps, in allowing 800,000 people uh, into Germany in 2015. But the reality is that in Germany today, the population of German Germans, for want of a better term, is actually declining and without immigrant labour, the economy wouldn't survive. Um, for instance, um, I read an astonishing statistic recently that in 40% of people in, um, in, in, in care homes in Germany, elderly people, have some unmet needs because it is so difficult to find employees to work in those homes. The vast majority of the people who work in them are immigrants just as they are in Ireland. And just as in Ireland, we have this extraordinary situation, for instance, where outside of Dublin, our hospital system is almost wholly dependent on immigrant doctors. Okay? So, they, they, so we, have, we have the push factors of relentless population growth without com concomitant um, economic growth in, in sub-Saharan Africa. It's not so much a problem in Asia because most of the Asian countries, even the poorest ones like Vietnam, are beginning to grow significantly, so the, the, the pressure isn't there. But sub-Saharan Africa remains this enormous uh, problem with huge population growth. And at the same time, in Europe, we have uh, um, labour shortages. So one of the things that strikes me when you talk is that there's a lot of discussion um, around immigration, around who are economic migrants and who are genuine asylum seekers. Um, is that distinction um, important when we look at what the European Union needs to do to reform its, its migration policies? It absolutely is. And I think it is um, it is a distinction that is extremely difficult to make. In fact, I know somebody who has uh, works with uh, interviewing um, asylum seekers and he said it's extremely difficult to distinguish between the two because sometimes it's the same country. Many of the conflict ridden countries where people are fleeing war and internal um, violence are also very poor countries. And of course, people will naturally they're desperate to get into um, Europe and naturally they will not necessarily tell the truth about their situation. They will pretend in some cases that they're uh, being persecuted and so on. Um, and who would blame them? I mean, it's, it's foolish to take a high moral position. Obviously, from a legal point of view, 
countries have legal obligations. So, for instance, we have what are called program refugees okay, in, in Ireland and we see, goodness knows, we see the, the difficulties that there are about finding places for them to live. So these are, this is under UN agreements, okay, that countries agree to take a given number from a particular conflict zone. And usually there's no um, doubt about that. I mean, if, if, if you are um, living in a refugee camp in, in, in Turkey and you're, uh, you've fled Syria and with, with nothing and you cannot go back, then it's pretty clear that you are a refugee in the traditional sense of the word. But many people will um, say they are coming from a conflict zone. At the moment, for instance, there's an issue about people coming from Albania. Albania is a very poor country and it's chaotic and corrupt. But there isn't actual persecution of minorities, but people are saying, you know, we're being discriminated against because we're from we're from a Moldovan background or whatever. But unfortunately, most of them are simply attempting to have uh, to, to escape to a better life and to earn a living. So I think that one is a very it's a very difficult one and it takes up. I'm not for a moment saying that we can't we have a simple carte blanche to allow everybody who turns up, but it's a very difficult one to enforce or to implement. How do you distinguish? And, you know, if you don't have, for instance, in Ireland's case, um, although we have expanded it in recent years, we still have a relatively small diplomatic service. So we don't have people on the ground in countries to give us. We rely very much, for example, on the UK to tell us what's happening in, in certain places. Um, so it's it's very, very difficult. And, and as I said, I know somebody who has the unenviable task of, of attempting to make decisions on those, interviewing people uh, as to their status and whether they should be given refugee status. Actually, what are the main routes that people enter the EU illegally? Well, the people I was just mentioning, I mean, from people coming from the conflict zones of the Middle East and indeed from sub-Saharan Africa are attempting to cross the Mediterranean. You have a horrific situation in Libya at the moment where vast numbers of people are making their way up from sub-Saharan Africa. They end up in Libya. Libya is effectively a failed state. It has it has a simmering civil war, uh, but it doesn't have um, a fully functioning uh, government um, apparatus. And these people are being monstrously exploited by people traffickers. Some of them, there have been even allegations that that a sort of form of slavery has now uh, emerged in, in, in Libya. So they will desperately, they will pay uh, large sums of money to people traffickers to get them across the Mediterranean. There was a land route at the height of the... Um, uh, of, of the outflow of people from Syria uh, about three years ago. You may recall tremendous disputes where countries were closing borders and so on. And um, those people, they want to get to the most developed countries because that's where the jobs are. And that's where the um, there are well-developed um, structures for um, caring for refugees or whatever. They can literally throw themselves at the mercy of the country once they arrive. Okay, Now, again... It, you know, everybody was t- terribly moved by that uh, tragedy of that poor little boy, Alan Kurdi. But it's interesting that this is where we see the, the terrible bureaucratic or if you want to call it political problem of distinguishing between refugees and economic migrants. He, he and his family, he and his father, I think it was, uh, were in a refugee camp in Turkey. They were safe, according to the UN definition of safe. They certainly weren't living a very comfortable life, but they, you know, they were in they were in shelter, they were in protected accommodation. And yet, he took the dreadful risk of of um, attempting to cross to one of the Greek islands, because it turns out he had relatives in Canada, and they wished they hoped eventually, if they got into the EU, they could somehow get to Canada. And again, 
this is not to take a, 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 a high moral stance on this. Who would blame him? Mm. He wanted a better life for himself and his children. But that would be, if you can see the difficulty you would have there if you were a European um, you know, official attempting to say, is the, are these people refugees or economic migrants? On the Essex case, um, a lot of the questions afterwards were th- the container was already in Europe, but there was a wish for, for people to get to the UK. Is there any particular pull factor to the UK or p- push factor for people to get to the UK in particular in Europe? Well, I think that it may be that um, the UK has um, a reasonably Uh, civilised welfare state and people are likely to be cared for when they arrive in in difficult situations. In some cases, they may already have relatives there. Um, They may, in fact, some people are there, they may have a working knowledge of English, which would, of course, be of enormous benefit to them, whereas if they end up in Norway or Sweden, they're going to find it much harder to survive. So it's, it's just, and of course, there's also, in some cases, the simple cultured links and all these uh, countries in, in uh, Africa and Asia had been part of the, the great British Empire, which the sun never set. Mm. So there were there were cultural and, and other links. OK, and they they felt that they could. Um, they, well, they didn't feel they might necessarily be welcomed, but that they wouldn't necessarily be turned away. And indeed, up to the 1970s, as you know, people from the Commonwealth countries uh, were freely permitted to enter Britain. Uh, it was only after the, you know, that this became, that the numbers drastically increased, that they changed the rules, okay, and uh, and started making it more restrictive. But some know. of those links have endured. The, the links have endured. And similarly, if you look at France again, the, um, um, you know, France had colonies, France once controlled Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos, and so on, it was called French Indochina. And again, uh, people from those countries frequently would have a working knowledge of French. So they're eager to to get to France and and, uh, and, and may be able to survive there. I mean, if you remember the camps at Calais and so on, which were, you know, um, uh, such a scandal and such a desperate um, setup for a number of years, um, the people coming through there, you see, were quite interesting. They were, they were coming from places like Pakistan and again, sub-Saharan Africa. They didn't feel a connection with France and they didn't feel they were likely to survive there. So that's why they were so desperate to go to Britain. I think this is a good point to bring in Ephanie Verku, a nurse with Médecins Sans Frontier who's on the line. Um, we know that obviously people come up through Europe to get to Calais to eventually reach the UK, which is their desired destination. Um, but they are actually, a lot of them are coming from Libya. And Aoife, why, I guess we kind of have looked at why they're going to the UK, why they're going to France, but why are why are so many people getting to Libya and going to Libya um, and using that route? Historically, Libya, the economy in Libya was always much better than other African countries. So historically, people moved there looking for work, for security, for a better life. And then since the revolution in 2011 and the fall of Gaddafi, um, the lawlessness that ensued in Libya created this huge vacuum for people to uh, capitalise, I suppose, on um, on this movement of people. Long lock smuggling routes suddenly reopened and the border areas and a very profitable business of human smuggling and human trafficking uh, was developed. And there's a very strong model there for that now. Um, And the lawlessness in Libya means that um, people there can capitalise on these vulnerable people 
and exploit them and um, they can either exploit them in Libya or else they um, can arrange, you know, for them to be smuggled and across the sea into Europe. We know the numbers, Aoife, back in 2015 were a lot larger um, in terms of people coming to the European Union. What has changed over the years that have se- has seen that number decrease by so much? Um, well, the European governments have enforced policies of deterrence and containment in Libya. So they're trying to deter people from leaving Libya, crossing the Mediterranean, and their their policies contain people in Libya. So over the past while, the European Union has been strongly asserting the role of the Libyan Coast Guard as the competent authority for coordinating search and rescue. Um, They support the Libyan Coast Guard to pull back migrants, refugees and asylum seekers who are trying to cross the Mediterranean and to forcibly return them into these detention centres. If you've obviously spent a lot of time in both Libya and on the Mediterranean, what kinds of people are hoping to make this journey across? I mean, I could give you so many different examples, but the movement of people, it's not a new phenomenon. Since the beginning of time, people have moved for food security, for shelter, for safety. And it's the same at the moment. Like people might come to Libya for work to send money home to educate their children, but they could also be fleeing um, war, persecution, um, lifetime military conscription, as is in the case in Eritrea. Um, They could also be fleeing sexual violence. People are fleeing Boko Haram, Ebola. There are so many different reasons and the reasons are complex. And sometimes people are leaving for a multitude of reasons. But once they're held captive, they're tortured in a warehouse in the desert or they're at sea on a flimsy and overcrowded, you know, rubber boat, they're all vulnerable and they need to be rescued. They need to be brought to safety A lot of these people can't swim and it's really an imminent life and death situation that we face every day on the Mediterranean. There was a long period there, I would say, from December 2018 until the spring of 2019. There was very little NGO presence in the Mediterranean. Medicine Sans Frontier and SOS Mediterranean weren't there and there was very limited NGO presence. Yet, as we saw, the push factors are so strong that the boats kept leaving week after week. And, you know, so many people have lost their lives there. Now, MSF are back in action there again um, on our new vessel, Ocean Viking. And, for example, what is happening now these days are that the rescue ships are conducting rescues and then they're left for days and weeks on end Um, with people stranded at sea. So as we saw now last week with this latest standoff, Europe um, is still failing to reach a solution so that rescue ships can disembark people who are rescued um, in a place of safety. And this is in compliance with international maritime law. Like it is against the law for us to return people to Libya. It's not a safe place of disembarkation. And many of the people that we rescue there at sea, they recount just horrendous stories of the violence and extortion and sexual violence and slave labour in Libya. Um, And people, they have no safe route to flee from these 
um, this horrific level of violence. The other big change this past year is that Operation Sophia, which was um, the, the European operation, which involved all of the naval assets and that they have taken away any of the naval ships um, from this operation and they now have only, you know, airplanes monitoring the situation so that even if they see a boat in distress, there is no naval asset to rescue the people. The Irish Defence Forces did have a boat there at one point. Is that still there? No, they're not. The Irish Navy is no longer there. And look, they did great. The Irish Navy did great work and I think they really enjoyed being involved in the search and rescue there as well. But with this big change in Operation Sophia, they retracted all of the naval vessels and all of the ships. The only involvement that they have now is by air. What countries, Aoife, are the main players in terms of taking part in the search and rescue or taking migrants after you guys have rescued them? I suppose in the in the past, we worked very closely with the Italian Maritime Coordination Centre. So up until last year, the um, the Italians would have coordinated all of the search and rescue. They would have um, contacted us to ask us, can you look for this boat in distress? Can you rescue these people? They would have assigned us a port of safety. They would have asked us, can you bring them to, for example, Catania and Sicily? And then last year, Italy closed its ports to us. Um, So now what is happening is that we perform a rescue and then we have this long standoff period with rescued, very vulnerable people, I will say as well, that have been through so much already. And then they have been through the severe mental distress of being at sea in, in a rubber boat for one, two, three days, not knowing whether they live or die. And then we have them on board for, like we saw last week, for 11 days waiting for Europe to um, to agree on a disembarkation process and to agree on which countries will accept to relocate the people. When a country accepts the people, it depends on the different European country. I would be very familiar with the system in Italy and in Malta. So they have reception centres. So the people enter the system in these reception centres And then they start their applications for either for humanitarian protection or for um, different levels of protection, subsidiary protection or for asylum. They can be in these reception centres for a very long time, waiting to hear the outcome of their applications. In other countries such as Portugal, Portugal has been very welcoming um, to migrants, refugees and asylum seekers. And they they like the people to engage in work as soon as possible. And so I know, for example, people we rescued on Aquarius last year, within a very short space of time, they were already working in the agricultural um, sector in Portugal. So they were already starting to contribute to the society there Um and, and again, in Ireland, people that we accept here go into direct provision. So this and, and it will likely be a very long time before they are allowed to work. Orla Aoife explained there to us um, the people she has met trying to embark on these journeys. Um, 
But we know in 2015, 2016, there was a lot more of them. Um, what are the numbers like right now of people who are trying to get to the EU? Yeah, so the United Nations publishes um, the number of people coming into Europe very regularly. I was keeping an eye on it this week and on Tuesday it was 92,000. Thursday had gone up to over 95,000. So there's a constant stream of people coming in. Um, 92,000 so far this year. So, sorry, so jumping far up this to year, 95,000. In the space in of two or three days, 3,000 more people have come in. Um, those people are coming in through the main Mediterranean route. So they're reaching um, Europe via Italy, Greece, Malta and Spain. Over 55,000 alone are coming into Greece. So that shows the huge amount of pressure on that particular country and its islands. The vast majority of people, over 78,000, have entered via the sea. And about 17,000 people have come into Europe via land. We've hundreds of people every day attempting to cross via the Balkans into Western Europe. The majority of people entering Europe so far this year are Afghans. There's about 14,000 people from that country. There's over 10,000 Syrians as well, so they make up the, the largest number there. Over half are men, about 28% are children and 19% are women. And as you mentioned earlier to date this year, almost 1,100 people are dead or missing and presumed dead when they were trying to make their crossing. Um, if we look at the, the death figures over recent years, 2,300 people died in 2018. And in the last few years in general, it's been around three or 4,000 deaths or people going missing. And there was a peak in 2016 where over 5,000 people died attempting to make the crossing. And it's interesting as well that while the numbers are going down, if we look at 2015 when the situation was at its, its peak, the crisis, over 1 million people entered Europe. So it is coming down, but the proportion of children this year has gone up. So last year it was about one in five, whereas this year it's over one in four and about 20,000 children have made the crossing into Europe so far this year. What has changed for the numbers to to, to decrease so drastically, like you're talking from one million down to 100,000, it's a massive deep drop? Yeah, so there's a number of reasons. So um, as Sean mentioned there, um, the EU struck a deal with Turkey back in 2016 and there was a number of elements to that. But basically for every migrant that went via Turkey into Greece, they either had to apply for asylum and if they didn't apply or they weren't eligible, they were sent back to Turkey. And the plan was for every Syrian sent back to Turkey, a Syrian that was living in a refugee camp in Turkey was going to be resettled in Europe. So that stemmed the numbers to a degree, but there was still far more people coming into Greece, for example, then being sent back out to Turkey. And that deal has been roundly criticised by MSF and others. They've said that it's essentially still allowed Greece to be a dumping ground for migrants and they're not protected, that there's still so many people coming into Greece. The burden is still on them and not enough people are being sent back to Turkey. There was another deal in 2017 that Italy struck with Libya. So Italian officials changed trained the Coast Guard in Libya and they were sending the vast majority of ships that were trying to leave Libyan waters with migrants and refugees back to Libya. So there was a, a couple of uh, arrangements, but controversial arrangements that, that were reached. There were also a number of, you know, security upgrades at, at different ports and different routes. Um, the National Crime Agency, for example, has said that um, the number of people coming into to Britain has increased this year in the backs of, of lorries and trucks, as we've seen, um, but that people smugglers are now going to maybe less well-known ports and smaller ports because the main um, precautions were being taken at larger ports. So now we're seeing people coming in maybe via Essex and via other um, smaller or maybe less used ports. Thanks Orla. As I said at the start, this is a difficult, complex topic. Um, so thank you, Sean. Thank you, Orla. And thank you, Aoife, for explaining so much of that to us. Thank you for listening to The Explainer. And again, a big thank you to Orla, Sean and Aoife for their work on this episode. 
Just a reminder before we go about another podcast from thejournal.ie. Stardust, a six-part special, looks back on St. Valentine's Night in Dublin 1981, where 48 young people lost their lives in a nightclub fire. Hearing from the bereaved, the first responders and those who have been fighting for justice, reporter Sean Murray and the team have asked, how did Ireland handle such a tragedy and was much of what happened in the four decades since dictated by class? Episodes one through four are available wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a really hard rendering, but really important one. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by executive producer Christine Bohan, producer Aoife Barry and assistant producer and tech operator Nikki Ryan. If you are enjoying these episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you and catch you next time.